loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Cheryl Crowder, a marriage and family therapist. She's an existential humanist psychotherapist with over 40 years of experience in the field of depth psychology and human consciousness. With her background in theater arts, working with performing arts, visual artists, and creative people has inspired her. She works with people who've been diagnosed with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses, their partners, family members, and caregivers. Her first two published books, Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story, and Psychosocial Care of Cancer Survivors, a clinician's guide and workbook for providing wholehearted care, came out of her own cancer experience. And her most recent book, Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go, was released on July 20th, 2021, not too long ago. Her private practice is in Albany and San Francisco with individuals, couples, and groups. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's so great to be with you again. Isn't it? Though I, I've been kind of rubbing my hands together all week. Yay, uh, a two mm-hmm. Cheryls out. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. The Cheryls are back again here. Yes. The Cheryls are back. The pandemic kind of messed up our trajectory. That's for sure. That's for sure. But um, I'm really happy to have you here. And and of course, because we do know each other and have interacted and done things together at Women's Cancer Resource Center, and I I keep remembering, you know, a, a a little nosh and wine we had and you know oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this and that we've had some um, fun times fun we've times had some fun times, times. Mm-hmm. yes yeah. so of course i'm i was aware when your husband died and uh you know i hope i offered a tiny bit of support um mm-hmm. and yes. and now a book has come from that which is the most beautiful book cheryl i i really really um uh, valued reading it. It was very meaningful to me. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. Um, it came out of one of the worst experience, if not the worst experience of my life. So as you can imagine, the writing of it was both uh, cathartic and healing and difficult and um, all of the above. Yeah, all of the above. And and it's... Um... You know, I've I've thought over the years. You know, I'm doing some things that have to do with um, the the evolution of us as grievers over lifetimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, to have come from an experience that is a loss experience, having cancer, I consider a, a you know profound grief experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then um, that I'm sure factoring into how you then faced the loss of your husband. Um, because we keep we keep evolving, don't we? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's start well, with. Well, go ahead. Uh, well, I just want to say I have received now the email that you sent me. So. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah, just to let you know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks uh, for the listeners. I I sent uh, I sent Cheryl's excerpts back to her so that we can hear them in her beautiful voice. <laughs> anyway. Um, but let's start at the beginning, of course, because our stories um, overlap but are so different. And and I thought of that so much while I was reading in that, of course, as you know, uh, my experience of losing a spouse was after an extremely long illness. But your experience was quite different. Could you um, talk a bit about what happened and where you were at first in that, in that um, experience? Yeah. Well, 
the experience of sudden death is quite different than the experience of someone having a long illness. They obviously both have traumatic aspects to them. They both have losses, particularly of a spouse, although, you know, particularly a child, a parent, a friend, anyone that you really deeply love and care about impacts your life forever. Sudden death has a traumatic ripple that, for me, and I think that this is common and universal, if I can use that word, to people who've experienced a sudden death, whether it be heart attack, stroke, accident, something that all of a sudden your world just is in an upheaval. Mm. Uh, my husband uh, woke up quite early uh, in, in the morning. His back hurt, his neck hurt. That was not unusual. He had back problems. So at first it was... Nothing particularly concerning. Uh, he asked me to rub his back. I did. It didn't feel particularly different. You know, and then he got up and went to the other room. We have this foam roller that people can roll on. And so he was doing that. And then uh, this is one of those things, you know, when we second guess ourselves, I should have known and all those thoughts and feelings come up. But he said, you know, I can get me some of that pain medication, which he had had for an earlier surgery that year. He had never taken it. He did not like pain medication. And, hmm. you know, later I say, I should have known then. Um, so I gave him a, a, you know, a pill. I said, well, you could take two. No, I don't need that. And, you know, of course, then I was hovering, which he, he did not like at all. And who could blame him? <laughs> so, yeah, I went back to bed. Yes. And, and literally within moments, I felt sick. I felt like did we have food poisoning? What is happening? And then from the other room, I heard this unearthly noise, this sort of gasping and snoring and liquid. And I just basically levitated back into the other room where I discovered fairly quickly that I thought, oh my God, he is not breathing. Mm-hmm. Which at this point... I go into this timeless other world, go to the phone, call 911, have this inane 911 operator asking me these questions, at which point I begin screaming at her. You know, paramedics are coming, firemen are in or out. It, it becomes a, a chaotic, terrifying scene. And at one point, I'm, I'm in the room, and, and all these paramedics are saying, no, you should go to the other room. There's a woman with me. She Somehow we get to the other room. I don't know how we did this. I'm shaking and shaking, and, and the paramedic comes back, and this big, huge man, I'll always remember the sound of his footsteps on the, on the wooden floor. And you know, he says, I have to prepare you. I, I cannot find a pulse, at which point I just at this point was shaking and this woman with me says, are you all right? Well, no, of course I'm not. No, (laughs) that answer is no. I I, I am not all right. Mm -mm. And with way, way too soon, I hear these heavy boots coming down the hall and I'm, I'm feeling inside myself like, no, no, you cannot come go back to that room. I no, 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 no. And then he tells me that, you know, my husband has died and the death report stated the death happened in less than five minutes. So in less than five minutes, you know, my, my partner, my friend, my lover, my ally was gone. And from there, I, I just travel into this world that is unrecognizable. I had to call my son who was at college uh, in Los Angeles. I had to get myself together to make that call. And, um, the whole thing just sort of moves from there. I have no. When did these people? When did the paramedics leave? When did my sister-in-law get here? When you know? When did this happen? What? Where was I? Yeah. Unimportant details at that moment, huh? Really? Right. I mean, exactly. yeah. not yeah. not the point of your focus for certain. Right. Mm-hmm. And it it's interesting because I when you said um, the you know sudden death is traumatic maybe it was just because i'd already had a big death thing but my dad died suddenly and i'm not sure Mm -hmm. that i would call it traumatic deeply grievous Mm -hmm. i would (laughs) but i think that's experience like it would have been totally traumatic if that one if i had 
had that experience first. I, I feel certain. Well, my that. mother, actually, my mother actually died suddenly right next to me. Uh, this was not my first sudden death. Um, mm. My mother died suddenly, collapsed uh, 45 minutes before my son's second birthday party. Ah, um, ah. However, the difference was at that point, um, I went and took care of my almost two-year-old son, and so all the paramedics and everything that was going on, I didn't see any of that. So yeah. for me, it was like the the whole event of, you know, engines and this and that. Um, yes, all that, the things you witnessed. I, yeah, that's, that's mm -hmm. what I'm meaning. And I think each, yes. you know, certainly a, a long death has its trauma. But I, I do think that <clears throat> the sudden impact of a loss, and I, I've, I've talked to several people, since then, um, who have said to me, yeah, you know, my father died when I was only 20. Um, he was only 48. And uh, until I was reading some of this passages in your book, I it was finally I felt like somebody had got it. Yes. Somebody yes. What my whole body went into with this death, you know, absolutely. So, yeah. And and then the particular the way we're so physically entwined with mm -hmm. the spouse mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to me is right. a, uh, is a big part of what I felt reading that because mm -hmm. um, of course that was true of my wife but I had lived mm -hmm. with the fact of her death for so long mm -hmm. it was a different experience yeah. for sure yeah. I had time to right. kind of grapple a little <laughs> You know, right. and, well, and, and then that, that the, a long, a long journey, <laughs> long day's journey into night, so to say. I mean, my father died of Parkinson's disease. So I, I have also, uh, you know, been alongside a death that, you know, torturously continues on. And you watch, you know, your loved one suffer and feel helpless. And it goes, you know, it's just like this, almost like a torture chamber, right? Mm. And and so I think each, you know, there's many ways that people die. We, I think uh, we have indeed. these images. We're all going to be, you know, holding hands and, you know, singing songs and there'll be flowers and, and it'll be all beautiful. And I think if people can actually manage to do that, that's lovely. But as we know, most of the time it doesn't get to happen that way. Right. And then yeah. wh whatever work we have to do is the work we have to do. Would you yeah, share, exactly. would you share, um, because I think it comes right out of this, it's not right when you're, when John died, but um, kind of expresses where you were for quite a while, yes? Um, when you went uh, on the trip with Bill and Shash? Yeah. Yeah, this is where um, it, it, John and I and Bill and Shosh, Bill, um, a.k.a. Billy Woods, <laughs> my oldest friend from life, we met when he was three and I was four, and we have been, um, well, we were didn't see each other for many decades, but then we reconnected. So all four of us were going to go to Lake Tahoe, we're going to do some fishing, because that's also a large part of this book. So um, this is where we're up in Tahoe, we're taking a hike, and um, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll go from there. John died five months before the trip we'd planned with Bill and Shosh. I was scared that it would be too painful to go without John. In my heightened vulnerability, I was also worried that Bill and Shosh might not want to go with me when I was still so raw with grief. In the end, I decided to keep the reservation, and I was relieved and touched when Bill told me they were glad I'd decided to do so and were looking forward to spending time with me in Tahoe. Four people have become three. I drive up alone, and I will spend a few days by myself until my friends arrive. I'm doing okay on the way until I pass by the infamous Cisco Grove spot. I guess I'm still okay after that because I keep driving, though I probably should pull over until I stop sobbing. I have brought John's ashes in a little carrying case from Sunset View Mortuary. I can't bear to go to Tahoe without him, so he sits in the passenger seat beside me in his small but rather heavy box on the way up. Upon arriving at the same spot we were all together a year ago, I haul everything up the stairs. As I struggle with a case of wine, I notice some men standing by the nearby barbecue. They clearly see me floundering, but do nothing to help me. Well, I think to myself, this is how it is now. 
30 years ago, these guys would have been falling all over themselves to help me. Last year, John carted the heavy stuff up the stairs. Now my goddamn husband is dead, and I'm lugging the freaking wine up the stairs alone, one step at a time. I'm glad when my friends arrive. The next day, during a light snowfall, we decide to take a hike. We decide to hike a familiar trail as the soft, silent snowflakes fall and glisten on evergreen branches, the wind gently scattering their whiteness around us. The three of us trudge across the crunchy ground in silence. On the path, a rare remaining fall leaf startles our vision with reds and browns. When it stops snowing, sunlight shines on the branches of the towering ancient trees arching above us. The freshness of the cold mountain air fills our lungs and the wind stings and reddens our cheeks. We're hiking through this sparkling, shimmering, white, wintry world to get back in the car when the infernal ring of my cell phone disrupts our peaceful day. Annoyed by something that is completely within my control, after all, I had not only brought the phone but also neglected to turn off the sound, I ignore it until we get back to the car. After I'm seated in the car, I open my voicemail to the voice of John's fellow fly-fishing aficionado, Peg. Hello, Cheryl. It's Peg Miskin, she says. I hope you're hanging in, and I have some news for you. The casting for Recover Gala was last night, <clears throat> and at the last minute, I decided to include John Ticket in the raffle and threw it into the hopper with all the other entries. She pauses. Cheryl. I drew his name. John won the float trip. I fell apart and was too overcome to read it out loud. I had to hand it to someone else to announce. She wants to offer me the trip, she says, to give me a chance to go and fulfill John's dream. John purchased this ticket just a month prior to his death this spring, and now after so many years of disappointing losses, he has finally won a prize that was on his bucket list a guided fly-fishing float trip for two down the Madison River in Montana. The Madison River, known as a mecca for fly-fishing, is one of the great rivers of the world and runs through the epicenter of what many think of as the best fly-fishing region on the planet. As I sob in the car, I marvel at the cruel joke the genie of the bucket list has played. From the back seat, Shosh places her gentle, cool hands on my shoulders and silently holds me as I shudder. Thoughts and feelings pour out of me as I wail. He wanted this so badly, and he'll never get to go. This was his trip, and now he finally won, and it's too late. How can this happen? Bill, sitting in the driver's seat next to me, says quietly but firmly, he got to fish a lot of rivers that he wanted to fish. He'd want you to go. But this isn't on my bucket list. And yet, maybe in some unknown way, it was meant to be my trip all along. As sometimes happens, like when I was diagnosed with cancer, it's not the journey I would have chosen. Yet these are the cards that have been laid before me, and I know I will play the hand I've been dealt. Is it a kind of madness to live out the dream of another? This question will plague me as the future I anticipated disintegrates into ash, and I find myself contemplating bringing John to Montana in a small plastic bag to one of the great rivers of his desires, fulfilling a wish on a bucket list that does not belong to me. Oh, Cheryl, that just so captures that sense of going forward from a loss with the other person not going forward uh it, it's so vivid and so so deep and we'll talk about that more after the break thank you for sharing mm -hmm. it listeners you. you'll find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america and to find cheryl crowder you can go to cheryl c-h-e-r-y-l crowder k-r-a-u-t-e-r.com be back soon Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. 
This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Cheryl Crowder about her book, Odyssey of Ashes. And um, that that experience that you captured so beautifully in your book of, of getting that call, uh, honestly, I felt um, glad that you were with people that you were so close to who already were mm-hmm. holding you in grief. Because mm-hmm. that kind of moment just has a tendency to take you down um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. before you figure out what to do about it. But you right, were mentioning right. <laughs> you were mentioning during the break that it was that moment that made it clear, although you hadn't intended it before, it made it clear you would write this book. Yes. I had no intention. I, did, I wasn't even thinking. I mean, this was only five months after he had died. So, of course, I was still trying to find my feet and trying to figure out, like I'm saying, you know, hauling wine around and figuring out how to do things that, um, you know, I, I hadn't done before and so on. But, um, yeah, when this happened, it felt so magical to me. It felt it felt sort of cruel and magical at the same time. Mm, it, yes. it felt like, you know... Um, there's a story here. And so I decided to write that story from, you know, starting at that point when, when that ticket had been pulled and um, I was then making the choice to go to Montana to do this trip. The, some of the backstory on this is probably also important to say is that John's, after I had cancer, John and I were very clear about what we wanted in terms of our own death. We talked about it. Um, you know, what did you want? What did I want? And so on. And his desire was to always have his ashes scattered by a trout stream or a, or a trout river. So it was also a way that I could fulfill a promise to him mm. that I would, yes. take, I would take him to where he wanted to go. I would take him to a river that he always wanted to fish. So, yeah. And, and so that's sort of the heart of the book, that trip. I mean, it the, the starts out with the, the, the early morning of his death. I feel like the center of the book is this trip to Montana and that odyssey. And then the second part is my return um, from this trip to Montana, this this fishing and the odyssey of, of sprinkling the ashes um, by the Madison River. It, part two, I think, is very representative of what happens in the aftermath of death when you then have to figure out your life. Who are you now? What now? What next? And so it, it then moves on into into that uh, part two, if you will. Yes. Also, though, there is um, a sense, at least for me, you know, I'm I'm 25 years in he- here. Um, there is uh, the things I did right at the beginning to honor my wife, to um, carry carry her through in a way like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that trip was um those had all my attention you know at first mm-hmm. however i would still say that a lot of what i do with my life refers to that experience obviously right mm-hmm. <laughs> I, course, I do the show and <laughs> you know etc yeah, but yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's definitely a thread and your book um made me think about it in the sense that um 
fishing was such a big part of who he was, as I understand it, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and every story yes. in the book, even the ones that don't seem on the surface to be completely about fishing, all have that at the core. And I wondered if mm -hmm. you'd be willing to talk some, I, I appreciated so much that you didn't diminish him by skipping the tough parts of who he was, mm -hmm. right? right. <laughs> because exactly. Exactly. There, yeah. there's a way that, uh, let's say I go to a memorial of someone I knew who was actually difficult and they're being spoken of as, as if they weren't, I just feel like they're mm -hmm. more dead. <laughs> they, right that somehow right and, right, right. Uh -huh. um, the struggles with with your husband and your son interestingly you told that mm -hmm. through fishing and i just wondered if mm -hmm. you could talk mm -hmm. about that because um that's a part of who we are too right our our glitchy places and you know absolutely absolutely <laughs> Well, and I, you know, I think none of us are saints and, you know, we don't want to canonize <laughs> anybody. <laughs> right. Um, I, I think it's important, and you're right, it's important to to talk about, write about, be with, and remember the whole person. Uh, I was married to someone who was brilliant, artistic, uh, extremely talented, pragmatic, did not suffer fools gladly, although I've been reminded by several of my friends that neither do I, but but I'm more subtle about it. He was not subtle about it. As, as, I, said, actually, as I said, actually at his memorial, he was possibly the most impatient person I ever met in my life, uh, which which uh, gathered a lot of laughs. That's saying course, a lot, Cheryl. Yeah, well, someone is brilliant and artistic, you know, you're going to take that. They're not going to be mm -hmm. Melvin Milktoast. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, that passionate person, um, you know, has has um, the ups and the downs and the ugly and, and the beautiful and all of that. Um, but, yeah, I, I do, uh, you know, there is a metaphor of fishing and water and storms that runs through as a through thread throughout the entire memoir, um, both inner and outer, the inner world and the outer world. The, the chapter about Ben I thought was very important because it showed the relationship that um, was, was difficult between them. And I felt it was important to honor, you know, my son and, and his relationship with his father and also the ways in which um, his father grew to understand what he had wished he had done differently mm -hmm. and began to change that. And I am so deeply thankful that that happened. It happened through a lot of um, difficulties, angers, upsets, me not knowing, you know, as a parent, you, you never want to be in the middle. You have to kind of navigate yourself in between, you know, these two <laughs> indeed, people. Indeed, indeed. Um, Indeed, yeah, as we familiar, parents, you know, and <laughs> very familiar, very familiar. But the fact that it um, that this relationship had transformed enough before the death, I think, was beyond fortunate. Um, that it didn't end on a really, really difficult, complicated note. I mean, not that all our relationships are complicated: parent, child, spouse, partner you know, right. and so on. But, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But they were, yeah. the impression I get is that they were in connection when your they husband were in died. Connection. They were in connection. John had realized um, the ways that he wanted to reach out to his son, and um, they had begun a different type of conversation. I no longer needed to, you know, try and either stay out of it or, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> your complicated decisions of, you know, <laughs> went down in exactly, volume. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. yeah, I mean, and actually the last conversation that they had together, um, was the night before John died. And it was a beautiful conversation. Ben had just had a very successful presentation, uh, had, you know, gotten some honors and, um, they had a wonderful conversation and literally, uh, within less than 12 hours, um, his dad was dead. You know, it, it feels to me like um, often right after a loss, the unfortunate is so prominent. Uh, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm aware over time, 
what well, more and more aware of what I'm grateful for. Like, if I were you, I'd be very grateful for that. You know, that's, oh, yes. you know, uh -huh. mm -hmm. but it's hard that's to register. Sort of beyond fortunate, beyond, beyond fortunate. fortunate. Beyond exactly. Exactly. Beyond fortunate, beyond grateful that, that again, that, um, that moment, those moments got to happen and healing, uh, healing was in process. Yes. Lots of those kind of moments in your book. And, and let's have you read from another one of what I consider to be that type of moment. Um, the part of your book about the Northern Lights, which I've experienced mm -hmm. once in my life. And you can't mm -hmm. capture them. And, you know, if you haven't seen them, it's very different to see them, isn't it? But just um, yeah. that part of the book uh stands out would you share that of course it starts out with a quote for night's swift dragons cut the clouds full fast and yonder shines aurora's harbinger at whose approach ghosts wandering here and there troop home to churchyards william shakespeare a midsummer night's dream NOAA Space Weather Prediction Center said, this is like a report that I'm quoting, said Sunday that moderate geomagnetic storm conditions have already been detected today, and any activity after nightfall could result in auroras visible as far south as the northern U.S. The increased chances for auroras were caused by a coronal mass ejection which collided with Earth earlier today. Coronal mass ejections are defined by the SWPC as huge explosions of magnetic field and plasma from the sun's corona. The National Weather Service, July 14, 2017. I'm fortunate to have witnessed the grandeur of the northern lights twice in my life. Once in 1988 when John and I were drinking and dancing in a cowboy bar in Montana and ran outside with all the other ship kickers to see the aurora borealis and now, 29 years later, tonight, July 16th, 2017, the night of the day I scattered John's ashes by the Madison River in Montana. Aurora Borealis, named for the Roman goddess of the dawn, Aurora, and the Greek north wind god, Boreas, is a rare and stunning night sky phenomenon that's long been the stuff of myths and legends inspiring story, stories among North American Aboriginal people who must have looked up into total darkness, unmarred by the presence of the ambient light that exists in our modern world, and watched in wonder as what appeared to be a fire ignited in the sky. From these sky flames, they created stories of warriors and dragons and beliefs in celestial messages, both of goodwill and its dark mirror evil. Some Inuit tribes believe the lights are the dancing souls of our ancestors. Do the ancestors who have gone before us return as this fiery light to guide us across the boundary of our known world to join them when it's time to travel to the other side? What story is illuminated in the sky tonight in Montana? Since I scattered John's ashes and drove the mile or two back to Rainbow Valley Lodge from Ennis Park, the treacherous weather of the day has again transformed into a vivid heat. As the dusk turns into night, I sit exhausted on the rustic western-style bench on the porch outside my room, drinking a glass of wine. The other guests are also out, drinking whiskey, laughing, lying about the size of the fish they caught today. Or maybe they're lamenting the fact that they spent too little time on the Madison this afternoon due, due to the fierceness of the storms. From my rough-hewn perch, I silently observe the sights and sounds of the fishermen laughing and talking while images of my day appear and disappear in my mind's eye. The experiences arise and disappear like mirages that will grow into memories as time passes, and I'm content merely to be with them in the dusky shadows of evening's arrival. It is my last night. I will be leaving Montana tomorrow, and I have no energy to engage in cocktail conversation after the heartbreaking journey of the day. I sit quietly eating cheese and crackers off a paper towel, munching on an apple, 
sipping a celebratory Chardonnay out of a plastic cup, watching the sky darken. As the evening grows darker and I continue to gaze into space, I notice a glowing vermilion light in the distance. Coming from California, my first fearful thought is that there is a fire coming our way. Glancing toward the road that runs by the lodge, I anxiously strategize my escape route. But fairly quickly, the light begins to spread over the sky above me, moving across the heavens, revealing itself as the emergence of an otherworldly glow. Chartreuse green and dayglow yellow swirls, strips of glittery gold light all flare across the night sky. Like a kaleidoscope, the colors change as they spiral and spin high above me. By now, the other guests at the lodge have left their rooms. They're getting up from their porch benches, and they're scattering out into an open space to look upward. Even Ed comes out of the office to take a look. The immenseness of it all is is breathtaking. The colors swirl and shimmer far above us, the sky metamorphosing as sparks of coral appear and disappear in bold stripes, wildly joining the dance of an intense chroma. All of us stand separately, yet we are joined together by a silent sense of wonder. People start to exclaim. We are, witness, we are witnessing the arrival of the aurora borealis, and I believe that none of us, so far away from our everyday lives, can truly fathom the privilege of the spectacular nighttime show we are watching unfurl above us. I notice a group of men heading to the field beyond the lodge to get a clearer view, and I decide to join them for the electric panorama. As I walk out over the grassy field, I see that I'm the only woman standing, resting my elbows, standing amongst a group of men. I join them, resting my elbows on the fence post of the pasture. I try to photograph the aurora with my cell phone camera, but it is, cannot capture the enormity. I give up, decide to simply be present and photograph the images with my mind's eye, to commit what I see to memory within myself. A more than slightly inebriated man stands next to me and excitedly blurts out comments about the magnificent sight we are witnessing. Although he is talking to himself more than he is to me, I respond to his excitement with my own comments. Words like photos are unable to record these images. The storms of the day have created this spectacular nighttime show of the aurora borealis. The tempest I have traveled through all day has broken the sky open into this phantasmagoric show of light and color. I will learn later that the violent, unpredictable squalls I was making my way through today were caused by an explosion from the sun's corona hitting earth. That my odyssey through rain and wind today was born out of the shocking arrival of fragments of the sun's plasma infiltrating the planet's atmosphere. Beyond the scientific facts, the world of hard, cold evidence, I think of the Inuit people, searching the incandescent heavens for the dancing souls of those who have traveled to the other world, and contemplate how earlier today I heard John's words guiding me through the maelstrom to his burial ground. Looking up into the darkling sky, I am grateful. Oh, let's take a break and come back and, and talk about that after. after. Listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page. And I want to mention I've now have, now have a platform on Clubhouse. I'm going to be doing some Clubhouse meetings. Go and look for me there. And to find Cheryl Crowder, go to CherylCrowder.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Cheryl Crowder about her memoir, Odyssey of Ashes. And before the break, Cheryl, you read that absolutely amazing part of the book about the Aurora Borealis. And, mm-hmm. you know, I it reading that, well, reading many parts of your book, I vividly re-experienced uh, many moments of magic that happened in the mm-hmm. course of my wife's illness and death. I, I don't know mm-hmm. what other word to use, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would say serendipity or magic, but mm-hmm. things that I cannot explain to myself that are so meaningful to me. Yeah. And it's almost as mm-hmm. if if I try to explain them too much, I've diminished them, right? <laughs> but I appreciate right, right. You, lo- you lose them, yeah. Mm-hmm. But... But I appreciated that you did um, describe that because what magic that was, especially after what you what you'd been through that day. Huh, yeah, my gosh, yeah. And I I love that it brought memories back to you. Um, I love that you had your own then images and and remembrances, and uh, I love that. That's that's always an intention. I'm I'm always I love it when that happens. So. Oh, that, Mm -hmm. uh, yes, that was um, really true for me throughout the book. Um, You know, for instance, I'm going to have you read a little bit more in a a second, but uh, one that stood out quite a bit is that right before my wife died, some friends offered to take her fishing. Well, she was in a chair by Mm -hmm. then. She couldn't actually fish. Mm -hmm. And she said, Mm -hmm. I want you to, I want you to take care of my line. I'm not a fisher person mm-hmm. at all. You are. <laughs> I'm not. Mm-hmm. And well, we kind of. <laughs> you mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. No, you are. Just not mm-hmm. not as avid as him. But and anyway, um, mm-hmm. so I was like, I wasn't going to say no at that point. And of course. Yeah. But mm-hmm. a huge trout, I want to almost say, jumped jumped out for me. You know, I mean, I was doing everything mm-hmm. wrong, Cheryl, everything wrong. <laughs> that fish should not have. <laughs> and I and it, you talked about fish stories and it, it made me smile because I have a picture of her and me, her in her chair and me with the fish in front of them. So of us. So I know exactly how big it was. But, you know, those, that was oh. magic. I mean, there there's no That's way lovely. that I could mm-hmm. land that fish, right? So that was one of the yeah, examples yeah, that came mm-hmm. up. W- mm-hmm. Would you, would you yeah, share just beautiful. one more part of the book for us? Before, sure. before uh, I yeah, you... I'm going to share uh, an excerpt. Yeah, an excerpt that um, actually comes in with a little humor. Um, I, I, it's important for people to know that there are. Um, I do, I do have a, a, a quite a quick and sometimes dark sense of humor, and, and I, I just want people to know that um, there are there are parts of of this memoir where that shows up, and, and I think this is one of them. Uh, the quote in this one is: uh, "Until we stop harming all other living beings, we are still savages." Thomas A. Edison. In the growing dark and chill of fall, when the dusky shadows of winter begin their foggy descent, I brave the apocalyptic scene in my garage once again to search for items on John's fly-tying bench as a way to commemorate his love of fly-fishing on the Dia de los Muertos altar. On this first day of November, as I enter the mayhem of the garage, for once I actually do know exactly where I need to go to find the accoutrement of the angler though only because of another hunting expedition that occurred in the same space just months ago. During the early summer this year, I begin to notice growing and disturbing signs of rodents in the garage. At first, I just keep cleaning up their poop, deluding myself that the shop vac and copious sprays of Windex would take care of the problem. Positive that I destroyed their habitat, I celebrated after I emptied a tiny little abandoned home out of one of my fishing boots. But a day later... When I was still cleaning the tiny black turds off John's fly fishing bench, I discovered another well-built nest tucked in a corner behind feathers and pieces of yarn. 
and as I was looking down, a small creature darted off along the shelving right next to me and disappeared from view. Shuddering, I fled from the looming, furry, seemingly enormous gray fiend who was clearly out to infect me with a deadly strain of bubonic plague. And so logic prevailed, and after all of these gag-producing failed attempts to rid the garage of infestation, and particularly as the dropping seemed to only multiply hours after I had rained terror upon the mouse community, I went to my local hardware store to purchase a trap that would catch but not kill the mice so I could release them into the wild, unharmed and free to roam anywhere else but in my garage. This seemed to me to be a variation of catch-and-release fishing, adjusted to the hunt of rodents in my garage. I tempted my little interlopers with globs of peanut butter at the backs of the trap so as to provide them with a tasty treat prior to their capture. I wondered if they would have chosen peanut butter for their last meal, as I sampled some of the delicious organic product I'd purchased to seduce them. Days into this humane catch-and-release hunting method, however, the peanut butter was solidifying into a concrete mass. With no takers, this method also failed. Back at the hardware store, I purchased some small devices that were supposed to emit ear-splitting sounds that would drive the tiny creatures from their habitat. Several days later, I was back to my shop back in Windex plan. I continued to clean up the mess left by these creatures who clearly had seen it all when it came to these instruments of capture, or who were wearing earplugs to protect themselves from the sounds supposedly emanating from the devices strategically placed in the garage. On my next return to the hardware store, I read the description of how the rodents would die if I used poison. Horrified and feeling guilty, I quickly exited the store without a purchase. Finally realized that I would have to resort to murder. I borrowed a small trap that would electrocute the unsuspecting mouse once it ventured within search of the small bits of cat food placed at the back of the trap. Battery operated, a light would flash when there was a successful kill. I renamed the device the electric chamber, placed it placed it strategically, turned it on, and exited the garage. Less than ten minutes later, I peeked back inside. A blinking light told me the news of the capture. Donning thick gloves, I picked up the trap to find a tiny, gray, limp little mouse who apparently had hopefully never knew what had hit him. I burst into sobs, crying and blithering to the deceased tiny being. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I broke down looking at this innocent creature who was only seeking shelter and a snack to survive, and was filled with horror and shame. I carried the electric torture device to the outdoor garbage can. Sickened, I dumped the mouse into what now would become my mouse graveyard. After this sad little burial, I sat, covered my face, and cursed this onerous job that I wouldn't have to do if John were here. In my state of guilt and fury, I felt a deepening wrath that I had been forced to take on the duties that would have been John's, and I screamed obscenities into the air. My usually strong filter was ripped and shredded when I tried to absorb the wildness of killing a living creature. I, the woman who carefully wrapped spiders in tissue and carried them outside, who apologized to the ants she had drowned or mass-murdered with organic sprays of some orange liquid, or trapped in little houses of sweet poison, now found myself dumping a cute little mouse in a trash can. My career as a serial killer had taken off. That same day, 20 minutes later, I peeked around the corner in the darkened garage and saw the bright red light blinking again. Oh no, I thought there's more. Wishing I owned a hazmat suit, I put the thick gloves back on and headed for the little murder box. Just beyond the entrance of the metal box, a lifeless baby gray mouse was stretched toward the cat food at the back of the trap. No bigger than half my little finger, I imagined it was the child of the mouse I had already killed. With apologies, but not quite as upset this time, I buried the creature next to the first victim in the open grave of the garbage can. I felt disgusting. But then, something rather alarming began to happen. As the hours went by, I began to obsessively check the trap. I recognized within me that primal human excitement of the kill. Me, who hated any form of violence, for the first time in my life was feeling the thrill of the hunt, the attraction to a blood sport. I actually began to experience the satisfaction of capture, the power of being the master of my territory. I began to feel an excitement in my success as the destroyer of vermin, 
and was both proud of and appalled by myself. During my time as a great hunter and destroyer of mice in my garage that summer of 2018, I counted a coup of eight mice in less than 24 hours. Each received a moment of atonement, and all were laid to rest together. <laughs> There's so much in that, yes. <laughs> There's so much in that, yes, humor, but but also that process mm -hmm. of of um, recapitulating spaces when someone's gone and taking on jobs and oh my gosh, it's so much and and I'm I'm similarly um, fiercely nonviolent, but have had to mm -hmm. incorporate the fact that I can't live with certain creatures and it's not really fair to make my wife kill all of them. <laughs> Exactly. It's not, yeah, it's not right. It's not right. And, and also, you know, I, I realize in, in this, in this piece um, is also something I think important when, you know, with death is anger yes. and wrath at the person yes. for leaving you. Yes. Um, which yes. I think shows up in this. It's like, you know, how, you know, damn it. How could you do this? You, you know, you yes. left me here and, and, that that is also an aspect of grief, right, Cheryl? That you just sometimes you're just so furious. Absolutely, and you know that's mm -hmm. right. And I'm glad we got that in before we're done for today. I really mm -hmm. want to thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot, and I'll uh, you'll oh, be on my club so my much. clubhouse in a few days. Can't wait. I know. I get to see more of you. Hear more of you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Next week I'll have Boo Patterson to talk about her book, First Art Kit. 25 Creative Papercraft Remedies for What Ails You. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.